The next song is in your order of service. It's on the back page. It says, I will praise him still. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne, as we give back just the portion of the blessings you've given each of us, Lord, take it, multiply it, and use it to spread your gospel, Lord. We just ask this in your Son, Jesus, precious holy name. Amen.
already gives you, given us, we give back to you this small portion. And we pray that you would use these funds, Lord God, to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
In verse 42, he says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the same thing we're doing here now, and the fellowship, the same thing we're doing here now, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And many people in life might take that as saying they were just eating lunch together, but I tend to think that's an intimation having to do with the Lord's Supper. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all and any as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. Now, the church is not a political institution. You all understand that, right? The church is not a political thing. We are a spiritual thing. But every once in a while, the church speaks truth to power and keeps the state and even the people honest. It happened again and again in Scripture. You might remember a guy named Saul. He became king, right? And so all power was given to him because in those days, if you were a king, you were a real king, right? And he has this prophet, Samuel, who's with him the whole time, telling him the truth again and again, and Saul continues to mess it up just about every time, right? And you've got David, a man after God's own heart, who killed the giant and was called by God to be the deliverer of his people, Israel, but he got himself in some trouble, and he had a prophet named Nathan that came to him and told him the truth. And David repented, which shows the difference, the polar difference and distance between a Saul and a David. We even had an Ahab, right? And Ahab would have fit in very nicely to this society. He wasn't against the God of Israel. He just wanted to have 20 other gods in there with him. He was kind of a unitarian. But at the same time, he had an Elijah who came and called down fire from heaven and called even the king to repentance. In the New Testament, you've got a John the Baptist. Do we remember how he lost his head one day? He was standing outside the king's palace calling the king himself to repentance. Did God give him power, physical power over the king? Of course not. God understands the separation of church and state. He actually does. But John the Baptist wasn't the prophet of the state. He was the prophet of the church. This is a New Testament guy. And after he called the king to repentance, eventually through a long story that you probably remember some of, his head was a little farther from his shoulders than it used to be. Now Jesus also, if we think Jesus is purely spiritual and is not interested at all in carnal things, or in statecraft, or in laws, you have to remember that the same Jesus is the eternal Son of God who gave Moses the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. He's not a different, newer God in the New Testament than he was in the Old. Same God, but manifested human flesh. And so everything that is moral that happens in the church, really we have a duty to speak to the entire culture on issues of right and wrong. If you think about it, and you're careful about it, and you're willing to give the benefit of the doubt, you probably already know that the world is not that great at morality. That's not really their key skill, is figuring out right and wrong. So for 2,000 years, this truth has been spoken in love, not only within the walls of the church, but also to the world. Now, I remember many people that have actually come to a saving knowledge of Christ through a course of mere worldly morality. And maybe you've seen this happen. People get a moral conscience, and they believe some things are right and some things are wrong, and they're so sure of this that they're willing to argue for it or fight for it or change the laws. And then you go to them and you ask them this simple one-word question. Why? Why is something's good and something's bad? Why change evil? Why fight against injustice? Just because? Just because it feels right at the moment? Well, the people that are doing injustice, they pretty much are convinced that that's the right thing to do at the moment, right? 
And so the church is never subsumed by politics or subject to politics. It never becomes a political institution. But the gospel and the preaching of it and the transformation of the life that comes from a person having a true and saving faith is intended to have an effect on the entire world. It is. Now here is the most dangerous thing that a church can ever do. They take the love and effect that the church is supposed to have on the world and they turn it into the gospel. I'll explain that a little bit because it sounds right. But let me ask you this question. It's a serious question. Is the gospel, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Is that the gospel? That is the law. That is not the gospel. Love God and love your neighbor, that's the Ten Commandments. That's the law. The gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I'm not saying that you hold them like this because they're not against each other, but you better hold them at least a little bit apart or you will confuse them. You will make the good works that you're supposed to do as a Christian, the obedience to God that you're supposed to do as a Christian, into the means of your salvation. And that is the primary difference between a gospel-believing church and a church that believes that they are reconciled to God through their own righteousness and good works. And that is the biggest danger in the church today, because it always has been. You go back to when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, and everybody comes at him with, hey, we're already righteous. We're obedient to the law. And Jesus never tells them, really, you shouldn't have been obedient to the law. You really should have been murdering and committing adultery and stealing from folks. That's what you should be. He doesn't do that. He's not against the law because the law is the eternal moral expression of God's inner conscience in and of himself, right? When God created man in the beginning, he didn't arbitrarily make up the laws. We brought, we've, we've bandied this about as a church. Are the laws that God gives arbitrary? In other words, he just kind of made them up and they could have been other than them all. They are, or the expression of his eternal moral righteousness. So when God told man, you may not murder each other, did it flow from God's actual inner being, or did he just make it up? Could God have made the law? You shall not worship the Lord your God, but you shall worship Satan, and it has been good. Doesn't it seem counterintuitive? Doesn't it seem contrary to conscience? And just your normal intuitions about what the Word of God says? Didn't God have to say you shall worship the Lord your God because you were created in His image and likeness, and so your very being is a thing that should worship the Lord your God? There's an inherent nature to man as the expression of the image of God that says that some things are right and some things are wrong because God is who He is and we are who we are. So the laws that God makes are not arbitrary. They have to be what they are. They will not change here. They will not change after the coming of Christ. The law of God is eternal and unchanging. The applications of it in the human societies are various, depending on time and place and culture. They're different the way we make laws, but they can't be contrary to the laws of God. And so there really is no possible society that will ever exist upon earth in which murder, premeditated murder from malice of forethought in the black heart, will be good. It will just never, never be good. Before God created anything, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit lived in a perfect relationship of love because there are three persons to the Trinity, not one. God is not exactly the same kind of a being as we are. He is a personal being, but he's a tri-personal being. And because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit always had a perfect relationship of love, when God created people in his own image and likeness, they too must live in a relationship of love. So this is all just to say, the gospel is not the law. The gospel is how you get reconciled to God. And that's through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But that doesn't mean the law doesn't matter. Because God still has standards for the behavior of his people. And what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is a practical expression of those people coming together in love. This is also one of the primary verses that's used by certain churches to justify the application of communism through the state upon all of the people within a community. And we might say to ourselves, is that really what this verse is intending to teach? They had all things in common. They gave to each other. They took care of each other. Here's one thing that it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they either took care of each other or the state would come in with swords and put them in jail or kill them. This isn't an argument 
for the state to have absolute power and the people to have no freedom, the entire intentionality of the gospel and the transformation of the heart is that these people did it because they loved their neighbor. And we might even say, even though this is, I know this is almost like curse words in a Calvinistic church, but they did it of their own free will. Okay, don't throw rocks at me. They did it from their freedom. They had the right to their property. And they gave from their heart. So this is, this is talking about people sharing and taking care of each other, but as the effect of the transformation of the heart that happens by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which just showed up a couple of paragraphs earlier, right? There's a difference between our justification and our sanctification. Our justification is completely outside of us. Our justification, if you will bring it down into accounting terms or even business terms, is a transaction between the Father and the Son. And you are a third-party beneficiary which does not actually do anything in the transaction. The Father sends the Son into the world, and the Son dies for your sins, so that now you can be made just before the Father on the basis of His grace alone, through faith. But you don't get to contribute anything but sin to the situation, right? Your sanctification is that from the time of your faith, God will tutor you in that faith, and he expects you to change through time and become more righteous and more faithful and more of an understanding of the grace that he's giving you through time, so that he's actually transforming you into the likeness of Christ through time. Now here, this is something that will put us at a marked distance from a lot of the other Christian brothers and sisters. Is it possible that in this life you actually achieve that perfection in this life? No. no. Now, are there entire denominations that say yes? Yes. Yes, there are. So this is one of the major differences between historic Presbyterianism and some other traditions that say that the, the exact reason for sanctification is that you reach perfection in this life. And we would say that even the Apostle Paul said, you know, still the chief of sinners have been doing this 40 years been preaching the gospel, haven't reached it yet, we're reaching for it, but we don't reach it in this life. We will reach it on the last day when we're raised from the dead and perfected. That's called our glorification. But sanctification is a process. Justification is a moment. Faith in Christ is what's necessary to be justified before God, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, none of your own. And yet at the same time, do you think that Jesus died for you to leave you in the guzzy position you were in when you met him. That's not the whole truth either, right? Can't we grasp in our minds that even though we're justified by the righteousness of Christ, he still has stuff for us to do? For those of you who've got kids, and for those of you that don't have kids, you know kids, right? And you don't love your kids because they're perfect. Well, I'm sure some of you think your kids are perfect, but I've met your kids, right? You've met, you've met my kids. I'm not, I'm not saying you've met my kids too, right? But your love for them is not contingent upon their moral perfection. And at the same time, don't you want them to turn out to be a certain kind of person? Don't you guide and shape that through time? I have to kind of remind, you know, even our own family from time to time, we've got until they're 18. Don't panic. We've got until they're 18 to teach them this stuff until we hope that they go out of the house and into their own life and they carry on the things that we have brought to them, the knowledge of Christ, so that they go on to live a life of their own free will, <laughs> the same life that we taught them to do. And this analogy that God has built into the warp and woof of the human being as he's created in the image and likeness of God is not wholly different. One of the things is, you know, Obviously, any of us, if you live 100 years, that's a pretty good run, right? I know a few people that are over 100 years old, and they are still in that process of sanctification because here's the thing. Uh, we're all infants to God, right? We're all children to God. We might get it. I remember this time at the uh, Via Sorrento is a, a retirement home in Los Angeles where we used to go in every week and we would do a service for everybody. And some of the ladies were sitting there, and they kept talking about how noisy the kids were when they came in. I didn't know who they were talking about. I was hoping they weren't talking about my kids, which was actually hypothetically possible. But <laughs> when the kids came in, because most of these ladies were over 100, there wasn't one of them under 75. It's a matter of perspective, right? 
And one of them was the daughter of one of the ladies that was talking about the kids. And so when God looks at us, you have to remember that if you reach 100, you reach 120, you're still a child to God, and he thinks of us that way. But at the same time, don't you expect a little more from the older kids than the younger kids? Generally, yes. my, you know, my kids remind me of that often. Why do you expect so much from us and not from them? Because you got a couple years on them, right? So we can see that sanctification and the entire reason why God doesn't pluck us out of this world as soon as we believe in him is that he is bringing us on a path of teaching and correction that prepares us for that great meeting with God. Do you remember when Ahab wanted a vineyard? And he couldn't get this guy to sell him the vineyard. So instead, he trumped up charges against him and had him killed. And it actually says in the scriptures that the thing that he did was he ended his life before God's time for it. Now, we know that ultimately that can't happen. But at the same time, God has a span of life that's natural to everyone. And so murder cuts off his will and makes the man's will the determining factor in the end of the life. In the ultimate unthinkable uh, uh, ordination of God... We know that he knows that too. But at the same time, there's ways that we can impose our own injustice upon God. Now, all of you have been seeing these riots and all these things. There's different theologies going on here, right? And one of the five theologies that's going on here, because it is a theological question, is did God ordain a society in which everything, including the economy, is controlled by a centralized government? Or did he ordain freedom for the people in which they're allowed to advance through their merit and hard work and industry to actually increase and be well in life. Now, some people have put it in these words. Did God actually ordain a theology in which theft from other people's hard work and labor is the primary means for the advancement of society? <laughs> what do we call theft, right? We know the laws of God. Theft is when you take something that's not yours, right? In Scripture, the state coming in and taking from one entire group of people to give to another group of people is just organized theft. One of the reasons that the founding fathers of this country had such a big problem with taxation, you remember there was this time when the state was being incredibly unjust to the people, and it came in and it put a three-cent tax on their tea shipments. Remember that? Three, three cents on your tea. And the people went crazy into such injustice, they threw it all on the lake, right? the ocean, Boston Harbor, whatever. Their sensitivity to the state taking money from them was highly advanced to ours. We're just kind of used to it. Now, Jesus does say that in regard to what the state does, they're allowed to do certain things and are given to them that, that job by God, but he doesn't say they have absolute power. As a matter of fact, many expressions of this state, the individual freedoms that we have, are an expression of God's law for those created in his image and likeness. Let's take a look at uh, Romans chapter 12. So first in Romans chapter 12, we see the Apostle Paul continuing upon this theme, and he's telling us the same things that Luke has told us in Acts. Says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's, let's move down to verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be lazy, but have zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So there is a moral urgency placed upon every Christian to try to take care of those around them. Then we move on to chapter 13, which is possibly, at this specific day, uh, the most contended set of verses in the country right now. All the pastors, all the theologians are arguing about this set of verses. I'm going to tell you the historic interpretation. As usual, if I have some kind of crazy interpretation, I'll keep it at home. 
If there are two or three major interpretations, I'll tell you all of them. But you also should know the big interpretation that's always been coming down through history because the one that's been tried and true is probably the one with the best legs. That's just the way it works. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except for God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Granted, those who resist the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Right. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Right. That's the way it should be, right? The Apostle Paul is talking about what should be. Have there ever been any rulers that were actually a terror to good and loved what was bad? That has happened also. That's just not what he's talking about, right? You have to remember that when he's writing this, probably somebody, you know, probably, it's, you know, it's hard to date some of these books exactly, but probably the ruler of the Roman Empire was Nero. And Nero used to light his garden at night by burning Christians in cages. We're talking about the time of the Colosseum, where they put the Christians in to fight wild animals unarmed. He knows and understands what evil government is all about. But he's not saying anything an evil government does is therefore justified because God instituted the authority. God instituted the authority, but he doesn't back every play of every person at every time. He's not saying that Hitler was good because he was the authority. God's not saying anything like that. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good. Is he saying, then go along with what's evil? No. But obviously, if there's a good authority in place that's using good laws and good implementation, you should obviously do what is good along with those who order what is good. For he is God's servant for your good. He's supposed to be, isn't he? But remember all those times we gave you examples from the Bible, Old Testament, and New, when the church had to stand up and say, you're not doing what's right? But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear God's sword in vain. He is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Every once in a while, the representative of the state is the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And then he says, because of this, you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Then he says this, pay to all what is owed, to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So the Christian, even under Christ, has a debt. But the debt he's talking about here is mainly to those around you. Even honor can be a debt that you owe to others around you. And I know that this is the one that Christians try to get out of as often as possible. You know, there's a verse, especially for you kids, you know, there's a verse that says, rise in the presence of the aged. God says they are owed a debt, and that is a debt of honor and respect, right? But then, as he always does, the Apostle Paul explains what he just said. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For when one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, earlier we made that hard distinction because it has to be made hard at this point in history. It's the most confused thing that happens in any churches in the United States and possible in the world is that they make the law the gospel and the gospel the law or they muddy them together and they ruin both, right? Love for your neighbor, that ain't the gospel. That's the gospel of the Pharisees, but it sounds good to us. Of course, you should love your neighbor. It's not bad to love your neighbor, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You still have no debt of obedience to love one another. For the commandments, then he goes into a list of the Ten Commandments. Now, contextually, we read the whole thing so you can understand it contextually. The good things that he's talking about, that those who are in positions of authority are supposed to be using as the measurement of good and evil are what he's going to tell you now. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore is the fulfilling of the law. 
So all of those verses talking about the state and talking about the government and talking about that you should submit to them are all measured by this law that Paul has given us here, which is basically an outline of the last six commandments in the Bible. Remember, there are two tables. The first four are about what you do for God. The next six are about what you do for man. And so that's the measurement of good he's saying. The idea that the state has the arbitrary ability to disregard the laws of God and still somehow be good in his sight or to persecute the church and still be good in his sight has nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever. That's a confusion that comes from outside of our religion, folks. And we've got 2,000 years of proof in this. So you remember that a few years ago I was in China, right? And we went around with the churches, and we went to secret churches, and we crawled through sewers, and we did all kinds of things to be able to meet with the Christians. And we met with church after church after church. And there was this one time they took me to this huge warehouse that we had to sneak into. We had to be there two hours early. And a couple hours later, there were seven or eight hundred people in that building that had snuck in there on a Tuesday afternoon to worship the Lord their God. Are we going to say that the government that is ruling over them, that is implementing this persecution of the church, is really acting as God's viceroy and agent, and that we should obey them in that? Or that we should think they're actually doing what's good because God appointed them to that end? It's not what God means. It's not what he means at all. That's a government that should end, that should never have existed. And if things happen the way they are, as we see, there's 150 to 200 million Christians in China now, that's a faster growth rate than has ever happened in any place else in the world that we know of in recorded history. If it continues at the rate that it is, you'll probably have five or 600 million Christians in China by the end of this century. How are they going to stay communist then? You can't stick them all in prison, right? How many rocks do you have to break, for goodness sake? When we measure these things, what I'm saying is measure them the same way you measure anything else. There's right and there's wrong. There's good and there's evil. When you exercise your Christian conscience in regard to what's right and wrong, apply the same standard to states and governments and governors and presidents that you do to your children, that you do to your neighbors, that you do to the church. You've been tutored in right and wrong and good and evil. If a state does it, that doesn't make it right. And if a state does it and it's right, you can't stand outside and say that it's wrong. At this time, where the Christian should be is where they always are, clutching onto Christ and him crucified at the center of their heart, mind, being, and thoughts. But in regard to what's right and wrong, that never changes. It doesn't change about circumstance, incidents, political shifts and changes. There's all kinds of things going on out there. I would posit to you this. People taking fire and weapons and beating people down in the streets and burning down cities is not a valid political expression of Christian love. Right? It's not a valid expression. Now, I know because I've watched literally probably about 50 sermons over the last couple weeks. I just want to know what's going on. If you think there's no churches that are out, that are out there preaching that that's what people are supposed to do, you're just burying your head in the sand because they're preaching it. As one thing that might encourage you, I haven't found a single church in the city of Memphis and these environments, because we're kind of, you know, little brothers to them here in South Haven. I haven't found a single church in this area that's preached that message. Every church has been, hey, you can march, but you don't burn anything. We don't want to see anybody hurt. We can speak with our voice and what we understand, but we don't want to see anybody out there hurting folks. And then they say it's against God's law. Now, in all these things, you're going to have your own judgments. There's the, the Bible teaches that you have to speak to politics because the only way you don't speak to politics is if you don't care about what's happening in the world outside the doors of this church, right? But the church is not a political instrument. The church teaches the gospel and the law. The law and the gospel, the gospel and the law. And then people as individuals make their own judgments according to their conscience, education, and understanding, right? So you don't tell people how to vote, you don't tell people what to do, but you do preach the law and the gospel. Now, it should be good and encouraging to you that even Pastor Orr down the street has done about 30 videos because his church has 10,000 people at it. And of those 10,000 people, 
I've been to a couple services. I think about 9,000 of them are not the same color as the people in this room. And he has continually told his people it is a moral and a violation of God's law for there to be violence and lawlessness in the streets. Isn't that good to know? It's good to know. So, uh, usually, I don't like to take it aside and talk about these kind of things, but everyone that I've talked to from this church, these are the kind of things that are on their mind and heart right now because it's going on outside these doors, so we have to stop and talk about it, otherwise we're not being the church. The church speaks to whatever needs to be spoken of at the time. So here are my encouragements to you. Understand that your life as a Christian is caught up in Christ. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. But the lens through which you should understand all these things and measure them is the eternal, unchanging law of God, which is summed up in this one message. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the fulfillment of the law. What you do with that is going to have to be done through your wisdom and experience accumulated by years and your analysis and logic as a human being created in the image and likeness of God. Let's pray. Lord our God and Father, we just pray that you would continue to instill in us, Lord God, an understanding of your gospel, that we would never confuse it with your law, that we would never make your law your gospel or your gospel your law, that we would know that we are justified by an alien righteousness. And yet at the same time, you do expect things from us, Lord God, as your true children, that we would follow after our Father and become like our Father in our heart, in our will, and in the elucidations of our mind. And we praise you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing number 274.
May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.